Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I, I received a text after the first service. I don't know if I should share it with you or not, but I'm going to now. Um, that said, uh, you should be as excited about worship as you are about the Super Bowl. And so to that end, Phil has agreed to let us pour Gatorade on him if all goes well after the service. He's a five-time All-American. I almost made the Super Bowl over there. So Pastor Phil, if y'all don't know him, pastors are good at bad jokes, right? So welcome to Covenant again. We're so glad you're with us this morning. Um, if we can do, as, uh, as Patrick said, anything for you, if we say anything here that doesn't make sense to you, you just want to talk after, we're going to be available for that. So um, let us know. Pastor Ryan last week mentioned that we are um, returning to John's gospel to finish it from last spring. We made it almost all the way through, but we still have five chapters left, and those five chapters are good chapters. We need to come back and finish it. Those five chapters really do. Chapters 17 through 21 form the climax of the, the story that John is telling about Jesus. And uh, the main themes here in the last five chapters are things like Jesus's obedience, full of total obedience to the will of the Father, his faithfulness, uh, the, the glory of Jesus manifest in his death and resurrection. That's his, the path of his glory. And then thirdly, the fact that Jesus is sending his disciples or his people into the world, empowered by him to carry on his mission in the world. We're in chapter 17 this morning. All of those themes are in fact present. In fact, one commentator calls this prayer a summary of the entire gospel of John. It is certainly the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the scriptures. The longest prayer actually recorded in the whole of the New Testament. John Calvin, the famous pastor and reformation of the, uh, pastor and theologian of the Reformation once talked about prayer like this pretty, pretty simply um, in advice to Christians. He said that, hey, prayer, prayer should arise from the bottom of our hearts. Prayer should arise from the bottom of our hearts. So our deepest desires, our, our deepest concerns, our deepest expressions of faith, prayer is laying those things before God and we present in that our heart to him. It's a really good way to think about what Jesus is doing here in John 17. And what we discover on the eve of his death is that at the bottom of his heart is us. Jesus is praying for us. That prayer can be outlined in three sections, verses one through five, Ryan covered last week, this week, verses six through 19, where Jesus prays specifically for the disciples who are with him in that upper room. And then finally, verses 20 through 26, which we'll look at next week, that's a prayer for the church or for believers who will still come to know him. So here we have the heart of Jesus before his father on the eve of his death, and we get to overhear it. For our young disciples this morning, something for you to think about as you listen and read, um, maybe, maybe just good to make a list, if you can kind of underline or just make a list of all the things that you notice Jesus prays for in this section of his prayer. What does he pray for? And then I want you to think about this. Do you think the Father, God the Father, hears and listens to Jesus, answers him when he prays for you? Do you think he listens to him? If you're able now, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? John chapter 17, verses six through 19. Jesus prays. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. He pray for us this morning. Father, we pray that this prayer of Jesus would be fulfilled in us. Um, Lord, that you would help us to know who we are, what you think about us, that you would preserve us. And Father, even now that you would sanctify us as we pay attention to your truth. And as we see the life of your son given to us in the gospel, we pray, Father, that you would, that you would sanctify us, that you would, Lord, cause us to think thoughts after you and have your heart as you send us into the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I, I'm sure that many of you have heard the slogan that um, Christians are supposed to be, wait, Christians are, right, right, let me get this right. Christians are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Y'all heard that before? In the world, but not of the world. I'm not even sure that's around still. I, um, I don't know how old the slogan is, but I, I certainly remember hearing it often in my youth group days back in the, in the 90s. I think that was the the golden era of world history, at least I conceive of it that way. I remember hearing that phrase, and I remember at least that the way that phrase was used was to frame how believers or how Christians think about their lives. So here we are in the world, it's where we live, it's where God has us, but here in the world, we are not of the world, we don't belong to the world, and thus we're supposed to look different, we're supposed to think and act and do our best not to be conformed to the world, not to compromise with worldly patterns of thought and behaviors. You're in the world, but your goal is not to be of the world. So um, you may have noticed in the reading that that language derives from this passage. You won't find the exact words here, but the language really is faithfully represented, except for one significant caveat. In Jesus' prayer, that slogan is reversed. The order is not in the world, but not of the world, 
Rather, the order is not of the world, but sent into the world. And now you may have think I just, you're, you're wasting our time on semantics here, but I think the emphasis really does matter, at least it has for me. The emphasis here on the prayer is on the disciples following the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the one, as John told us in John 1, who was not of this world, but was sent into the world to make God known. That mission was so clearly articulated by Jesus himself in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so in John's gospel, the otherworldliness of Jesus is what makes him able to represent the heart of God to a world that needs to know God. He is not of the world, but he is sent into the world. In this prayer, that is the order. We are taken out of the world, not just to fret and to worry about not compromising with it. Of course, we shouldn't do that because we're not of the world. We are claimed by God out of the world, but we are taken out of the world, Jesus says, in order to be sent by him to make him known. And that is the emphasis here. It is the story of Jesus and the heart for his church, the heart for us as his disciples. And so this morning, we're gonna look at those two things briefly in the right order, in the order they come to us in the prayer. Not of the world, you'll find that in verses six through 16, but sent into the world in verses 17 through 19. Let's look first at not being of the world. You'll find that language directly in the text pretty clearly, for example, in verses six and 14 and 16 among others. You can look there with verse six with me again. Jesus says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is saying, this is an identity statement here, that the disciples themselves no longer belong to the world. Well, who who do they belong to then? They belong to the word instead. That is in John's gospel, the self-disclosure of God in Jesus Christ. Their identity, your identity, is not found in the world. You will not find your identity in the world. It is found in Jesus Christ. And I wanna point out three things that flow from that in our passage. The first is this, somewhat topically, verses six through 16. When Jesus talks about the world here, he makes a very stark division or a very stark contrast between himself and the world. And I probably should have clarified this earlier, but the word world is used in this passage 13 times. So what in the world does John actually mean by it or Jesus mean by it when John records him? Most of the time when John uses the word or the phrase the world, it means simply everything that we see or experience that is hostile to God. So John uses it to to kind of summarize human life alienated from God. When you hear the word world, I don't want you to think of a map, right? Don't think of uh, your favorite beautiful landscape, a beach somewhere, or the mountains. The world when John uses it is our individual and collective cultural expressions of sin. It is human life going its own way. And the big idea here, you can see it pretty clearly in the prayer, is that this is an either or proposition. 
You are either of the world belonging to the world, or you are of God. There is no both and. Such that to be of God, as Jesus says in verse 14, is to be hated or rejected by the world. So listen to me, it it doesn't matter when in history you've lived, it doesn't matter where on a map you live, there isn't a secret oasis somewhere that is the exception to this rule. In this prayer, Jesus describes a cosmic conflict that all of his followers will experience wherever you are between your loyalty to him and between your life in the world. So I just say that because we shouldn't be surprised when things, when we experience that. Don't be surprised, the contrast, the division is real and it is perpetual, okay? Second, Jesus does not offer a fix for that experience. He does not offer a fix for that conflict at the cosmic level. In other words, you'll notice in this prayer that he does not pray for the world to be changed nor does he pray for his disciples to go out and to change the world with their own efforts. You have nothing remotely close in this prayer, really the New Testament, to just trying to go out there and make the world a better place. Now listen to me, I I get killed by this, but I'll, I'll make the mission known here in a second, but as a quick disclaimer, of course, Of course we should care about and work toward and pray for truth and beauty and goodness in the world. And of course we should do our best in our callings and exercise our citizenship and use the gifts that God has given us to serve him in the world. But the expectation is that we will always be doing that this side of heaven in the midst of incredible trial and tribulation. And changing the world is not the goal. It's not what Jesus prays for. Serving God, making him known, that is the goal. We're to trust him with the results. And so what does Jesus positively pray for his disciples then? What is his heart for those who are not of the world? Here it is mostly in in verses six through 16. Jesus prays, for his disciples to be protected, to be secure. So the end of verse 11 is representative of that prayer. You can look there with me. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, protect them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Okay, so in a world, as we've said, as Jesus talks about here, that is not fundamentally safe, that is not fundamentally safe, where will the followers of Jesus find their safety, their security? Jesus says it here, they will find their safety and their security in his name alone. And in the unity that is the fellowship that he has had eternally with his father. So I wanna talk about that just for a moment. All of us have a fundamental need for safety, for security. You want it for yourselves. We want it for our children. We want it for all those whom we love. And I would wager that if you peeled back the layers on your heart right now, 
and your motivations, you would find that mo- uh, not mo- maybe much, maybe most of your anxiety and your labors come from a desire for security. I had a pastor friend who used to say all the time that most of our anxiety and worry in life comes from trying to find our security in fundamentally insecure things. And Jesus is teaching us in this prayer that you cannot find the answer to your insecurity in the world. So he doesn't pray for what? Doesn't pray for healthy 401ks? Doesn't pray for lives to be comfortable and easy? He doesn't pray for our political favorites to stay in office? He doesn't even pray here for our health. To not be of the world means that we are always appropriating and resting in the name of Jesus for our security. Friends, his name, his name is what keeps you. His name is the anchor that you drop in the middle of the storm that is this world. And I have to point this out because so much of the first part of this prayer is not really petitioned at all. He didn't ask for things. He's just describing his disciples, those whom God has given him out of the world. So let's look at this. How does Jesus think about his disciples? How does he think about you? Now, if you've read the gospels before, if you've read any of the gospel of John, if you were with us last year, and you followed these 12 guys who were with him, who are representative of us, you will say that how Jesus describes them in this prayer is at least a very generous description of who they really are. So who are they? Look at verse six, how he starts. The people, he says, whom you have given me out of the world. The first thing that Jesus says about them is that they are a gift. He sees them as a gift from the Father to him to be treasured in his possession by himself. Jesus calls his followers a gift to be treasured. Verse six also, he says about them, they have kept your word. Do you hear that? They have kept your word. Do you know the story of the disciples? They have kept your word. If you know the story of these guys, you're like, I don't think they did that all the time. Here's the word they have kept in verse eight. Look there with me. Jesus says it here at the end. They have believed that you sent me. That is the word they have kept. They believed. They believed that you sent me and all that comes with the fact that I'm your representative. That is a description of faith and believing that God sent Jesus is sufficient, is enough for Jesus to reckon that throughout all the ups and downs of their obedience that they are fundamentally word keepers. They are word keepers. He sees them as a gift. He sees them as faithful and then verse 10, get this. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Oh, really? You're glorified in them? Jesus reckons his followers as his glory. They are a gift. He reckons them as faithful. He sees them as his glory. And that is what it means to be kept in his name. That is their security in an insecure world. What Jesus has said about you, what he thinks about you, how he prays for you, his regard for you, how he treasures you in his name, that is who you are. 
fundamentally who you are. We are not of the world. We are not what the world thinks about us. We don't find our identity there. We are of him, and that is the starting place for this prayer. From there, we are sent into the world in verses 17 through 19. Let's look at that for a moment. You can look at pretty, pretty clearly in verse 18, convincingly, perhaps convictingly as well. Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And what Jesus is saying here is that if we wanna think individually and collectively on what it means for us to leave here and go out into the world, then he has to be our model. We have, we have, to, we have to see how he did it, right? His character, his ways, his affections, his words, his ministry is our model. So let's just do this for a moment. To whom was Jesus sent? To whom was he sent? Was Jesus sent out into the world to those who liked him? Was Jesus sent out into the world to those who agreed with him? Was Jesus sent out into the world to those who posed no threat to him? When Jesus went out into the world, did you find him to be a respecter of persons? Did he only go to certain kinds of people? I mean, think back of the Gospels. And if we wanted to do this really clearly in John's Gospel, we could just take John 3 and John 4 and talk about his ministry for a moment. In John 3, Jesus goes to who? A man named Nicodemus. Remember who Nicodemus was? We'll meet him later in the Gospel. He's an elitist, well-educated, morally superior, religious, right? He is lost as all get out. And Jesus goes to him and he meets him where he is and he shares the gospel with him. Now it's clear that Nicodemus doesn't understand it, <laughs> but Jesus goes and meets him where he is. In John 4, who is it? Samaritan woman. It's the exact opposite. No lineage, likely poor, sexually broken, a, a moral failure, in the wrong part of town. And Jesus goes to meet her at a well, and he meets her where she is, and he shares the gospel with her. And she becomes really the first missionary in John's gospel, if you don't count John the Baptist. She goes back to her town and shares him with everybody else. What is the model that Jesus gives us for being sent out in his name? It is all kinds of people in the world to meet people in their own versions of brokenness in the world their own lostness, knowing that many of those will likely reject us because it's not safe, we've said that. But do you remember what the apostle Paul says about his own ministry, likely learning it from Jesus? That I became all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. So I just met people where they were, by all means, so that I might save some and then share in the blessings of the gospel. So friends, if we want to think as a church about mission and about this prayer and about what it means to go out into the world, we have to think about the character and ways and encounters that we find Jesus having in the gospels themselves. Who was he and how was he sent? He's our model. And then where's the power for that? The power will close here to be sent as Jesus was sent is the image that we get in verses 17 through 19, which bookend, bookend verse 18. 
It's the image of sanctification. So in, in verse 17, it says it pretty clearly. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Now, we don't use the word sanctification a lot outside of religious kind of gatherings, and so what do we even mean by that? Well, sanctification or to be sanctified really just means simply that we are to be set apart by God for God's purposes or his holy use. All this comes back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you remember two years ago from Leviticus, y'all remember that pretty well? Good, glad, no, not, not, nothing, just you can nod your head and lie to me. We looked at how God sanctified certain objects. Um, He sanctified certain people. So the objects like the censer in the temple or priests, he sanctified those people or set them apart for holy use and service to him. And do you remember back in Leviticus that in order for that to happen, to serve God, to serve his purposes, what did those instruments and people first have to do? They had themselves to become clean. They had to be cleansed. They had to become unworldly or undefiled to serve God, to serve his sacred purposes. And the way that happened was by an animal sacrifice consecrated by the word of God that covered them, washed them, cleansed them to set them apart for God's service. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 19. I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself for their sake that they may be sanctified in truth or truly. And what Jesus is saying here is that he alone is the sacrifice (coughs) to which all the other sacrifices pointed to cleanse us and to set us apart for the sacred service of God in the world. You think about the Levitical priests, that is your vocation in the world. Sanctified and washed and cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus. God consecrates you in order to send you. It's going on at the table. He blesses you in order to make you a blessing. He sets you apart in order to make you useful. And so holiness here is not directionally given so that we might give up on the world. Holiness is given for us to grow in conformity with the holiness of God who so loved the world. So that from the gospel of Jesus' own self-offering for us, as we grow more and more into that sanctification or that holiness or that set-apartness, more and more to think God's thoughts after him, more and more to feel, to feel his affections, his heart, more and more to display his character, we grow in service to a world that does not need us to like it or to be like it in order to be useful to it. Does that make sense? A world that desperately needs to be reconciled to him, not a world that needs us to go and be liked. God sends us out. He sends us out to belong to Jesus into the world as Jesus was sent to proclaim the gospel, and he consecrates the entirety of your life for that purpose, to go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, Father, that you would, that you would by your spirit, grow in us the heart of Jesus for the world, for us even, first. 
that he was sent to redeem. And we pray, Father, that, that uh, oh Lord, that you would, you would consecrate us for your service, that even as we eat and drink now, that you would bless us so that we might serve as a blessing to others. And may the shape of Jesus' life, may his heart, may his ways, may his character inform and shape Lord, the way that we treat others, the way that we see the world as though opposed to you directionally, loved by you for the sake of your son. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.